Well, as we begin our time in the Word of God this morning, I'll ask you just to bow with me for a word of prayer as we ask God to attend to our study. Father, we thank you once again for this time, time to be together as a family, a time to open your Word, to hear from you, to honor your name as we listen to you, and even more so as we put into practice the very truths that we hear this morning. Lord, we thank you for the blessing of life in Christ. We thank you for the blessing of understanding your word by the power of your spirit. And so we ask that you would illumine us, that you would cause us to understand and be good stewards of the very things we hear this day. For your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you well know, we have been studying through the book of Romans over the last several years, has it been? I think it's years. And we are in uh, chapter 13 of our study, and we have been studying, uh, really from chapter 12 on, worship, the issue of worship, right? Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 says, this is the reasonable service of our worship, that we offer ourselves to God as as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice before God. And so this morning, for our time before we get to the Lord's table, I want us to turn to another passage in Scripture where we have been in the past, Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Because in God's providence, we are in Hebrews chapter 9 this morning in light of the week that I had this week, and particularly in light of the fact that it is communion today, and communion is about worship. Worship. We've sung about worship. We've read scripture already about worship. We've talked about worship. And Hebrews chapter 9 is about worship. In fact, that is why we gather as a body of Christ. Individually, we are worshipers, but as a body, we gather together so that we can corporately worship our Savior. There is so much that you and I receive individually from these kinds of moments, this time together as worshipers. We were, as Randy said, discussing that even this morning in our time of Sunday school with the new members class. But there is nothing better and nothing more important in what we do when we are gathered together than to worship Jesus Christ. You may come here and you see friends, and you see people who you enjoy to be around, and you've spent time with them maybe even during the week, and you've thought about how enjoyable those moments were. And you may have even spoken about Christian things and themes and doctrines and ideas and struggles in your own life, and the interaction was sweet. And in one sense, it was worship to God because God was exalted when you highlighted him in your life, but there is something special that God has brought in and designed when the body meets together for worship. That is why we exist. We have been created by God to be worshipers of God, and we worship God through our relationship with Jesus Christ And in fact, that is what we will do throughout all eternity. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we together will worship. 
That's what the glories of heaven will be. It will be a time of worship. And so as Christians, we are just that. We are worshipers. And it is the body and blood of Christ that opens that door for us. We are not worshipers outside of Christ. There is no capacity within the heart of man to worship outside of knowing Jesus Christ as a personal Savior. You will not worship God. In fact, Romans 1 was clear many, many months ago when we studied it that mankind, in fact, because of his own sinfulness, rejects God, rejects the truth of God, and doesn't want to worship God at all. In fact, worships the creature rather than the Creator who is to be blessed forever. And so the only thing that makes you a worshiper of God is a relationship with Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews is proving this point in chapter 9. And he is proving it by way of a contrast. The contrast between worship in the Old Covenant and worship under Christ in the New Covenant. Because in the Old Covenant, there was an inadequacy. An inadequacy of truly clearing the guilty conscience in comparison with the new covenant in which being in Christ accomplishes all that we need to be true worshipers. Now, I want to begin this morning by just reading for us the first 14 verses of chapter 9, and then we'll just walk ourselves through this and just draw out some implications for us. Romans chapter, or Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 to 14. Writer of Hebrews says, Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. And behind the second veil there was a tabernacle which is called the holy of holies having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. And above all of it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now, when these things have been thus prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. 
and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? I trust you can see, at least in a reading of those verses, the inadequacy of the Old Covenant in comparison with the New. And the writer of Hebrews sets it out for us here through the comparison of worship. Worship in the Old and worship in the New. Worship within the tabernacle is in the first ten verses and the first five of those ten verses give us a picture, really condensed, a condensed picture of the setup of the tabernacle. And I say a condensed picture simply because you can go to Exodus chapter 24 and 25 and get a more robust or more detailed picture of the tabernacle. But it is clear, nonetheless, from verses 1 through 5, that Israel's tabernacle, at least until the time when the first temple was built, when you go back to Exodus and you read about it, their first tabernacle was, was a portable tent. That's really what it was. It was a, it was a portable uh, edifice, a tent, really. It was, it was something they could carry with them. It was always placed when they would move in the geographical center of the tribes of Israel as they were led by God through the wilderness. This is what the Old Testament describes to us. It shows us that in detail. Now, just for our understanding, it was all made according to specifications. In fact, verse 1 says here that the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary, right? The tabernacle had certain regulations as it was to be made. God had been, was very specific. He gave very specific details as to how it was to be made up. And the tabernacle was made up of cloth walls, linen walls, that were set up really as a courtyard around the actual tent, which the writer of Hebrews describes as two rooms, one called the holy place and the other the holy of holies, and both he describes as tabernacles or places of worship. And the outer part was the court of the tabernacle. That was the official term of it. It was the outside area around it. The linen curtains would be made up of white linen, which signified holiness. And so as the worshiper would enter the courtyard, when they would come in in order to uh, do their worshipful activity, they would enter this place. And immediately upon entering into this courtyard, they would enter and see the altar on which the priest would place the burnt offerings. So when it came to the tabernacle, if you weren't a priest, if you were just a normal Joe in the in Israel, 
you weren't a priest, that's as far as you could go. You could go no farther. You could do nothing else. That was as far as you could go. You could only go as far as the altar, just inside the outer courtyard wall, if you will. It would be there that you would bring your animal sacrifice, you would whatever sacrifice, whatever kind of animal that you could bring to the priest, it was there. You would place your hands on the head of that animal that was being sacrificed, signifying you were placing your sin upon this sacrificial animal, and then you would leave the area. So think about it in practical terms as we sit here this morning. We're all part of Fellowship Bible Church. Let's just think in our minds that this is the tabernacle, this edifice that we're in right now. This is the tabernacle. Well, as just general people who are part of the building, we couldn't come any farther if you weren't a priest as the parking lot. That was as far as you could go. You could enter into the driveway of the parking lot. You could be in the parking lot, but you couldn't go any farther. You never stepped inside the building. That was as close as you would ever get in any kind of proximity to God. Remember, God was there in the Holy of Holies. His presence was there. You could never get close to God. Your access to God was severely limited. Right behind that area in the courtyard was the tabernacle portion, the tent. And of course, as we read here in Hebrews, it was made up of two different Areas, an outer one in which was the lampstand, the table, the sacred bread. This is called the holy place, verse 2 says. So one layer was this area called the holy place inside the tent. There was a veil on the front of the tent. The front tent was made of blue and purple and scarlet yarns. They were all woven together in this ornate pattern that would have created the outer parts of the tent overlaid with animal skins, just as God had told them. And then inside you have this division, two rooms separated by a large, heavy curtain known as a veil. That's how we See it in Scripture. Every time I read that word veil, I always think of when you go to the doctor and they want to take x-rays, they put that big heavy lead blanket on you. That's what I think of. The veil was woven of these same kind of colors, this colorful uh, woven tapestry. It had golden cherubim woven in. It was supported by gold columns on silver bases. I mean, it was absolutely stunning to see it. One room, of course, is called the holy place. The other one, the most holy place or the holy of holies, as it is written here in the New American Standard in verse 3. And in verse 2, you get the description of what's inside of these rooms. And the first room is a lampstand, right? It wasn't the kind of lamp that you're thinking of that sits at home on your side table by your couch where you just click it and turn it on. According to Exit 25, it was a standalone lamp made of solid gold. It had three branches that came out from each side and uh, so that along with the middle part, it was seven lamps, much like we see the Jewish menorah these days. 
So in this room was that lamp, and you had this table of sacred bread, and it was upon that bread that they kept 12 loaves of bread to represent the 12 tribes of Israel, and every day they would make, or every week, those loaves would be replaced with new loaves. So this is what you have in room one. So the, if you're somebody like, like us who's not a priest, you go in the outer part, the priests are there, they can sacrifice on this big altar. And behind that is this tabernacle, and inside the first veil or inside the first curtain you go in is the holy place. There's this lamp that was always lit, and there's this showbread there, or this sacred bread on the table in the holy place. And behind that's the second veil, the second curtain. And it says, there was a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies. Principal peace within the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant. Right? You see that there in verse 4, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold. Made of wood, covered with gold by the artisans of the time, carried the... Ten Commandments, the law, right? The tablets of the covenant, covenant, as verse 4 says, it also had inside the jar holding manna. All of these reminders, Aaron's rod which budded. Remember when Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and the rod is the very thing that Moses uses to even, God uses as part of the miracles to deliver them. All of these are there. All of these are inside. They're inside the Ark of the Covenant, these pieces, and the tablets of the law. They're there to remind the people of who God is and what God has done. Remember, the manna used to, if you, only, if you collected more than what God had told you, it would rot the next day. Well, here's a jar filled with it who has gone on for years. This is to remind the people that it's God who brings them to where they are. It's God who provides for them. It's God who takes care of them. And of course, when you go back to Numbers chapter 16 through 18, you see the seriousness through which God required the worship of the people. As you see the fascinating account of how the rebellion of Korah was taken care of by God. All that to say that on in there is this piece of furnishing, if you will, called the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was known as the mercy seat. The mercy seat. And it was upon this that the high priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement for the sin of the people before God. And he only did that once a year. And all of this was glorious. It was all filled with all kinds of symbolism, all filled with all kinds of reminders of the people. And we kind of get a feel for it. We get a feel for the tabernacle. We get a feel for what it is. We get a feel for the symbolism of it all and the seriousness of it all. And we get to appreciate what worship is. All of these things are going on. When we think about worship, we realize that worship is continual. 
never ended. The tabernacle was always open. It was never closed. It was always there. The priest was always sacrificing. There was always something going on. Worship was always continual. Worshippers were always bringing their sacrifices into the courtyard so that it could be altered, so that they could be sacrificed on the bronze altar day after day, week after week, year after year, time and time again, the priest would sacrifice on behalf of the people and the people who uh, were there would go and they would have their sacrifice offered and the priests would go inside the holy place and they would light the lamp, make sure the lamps continually were lit, make sure the bread was new and all of those things were going on. But no one dared to look into the most holy place. No one dared do that. No one had personal access to God. It was impossible. Ministry inside the Holy of Holies was the privilege of the high priest, and that only once a year, and that on the Day of Atonement only. Couldn't be done at at a whim, couldn't be done when he felt like it, couldn't be done at the first time of the month. Couldn't be done at the first Sunday of every month of every year or every week or whatever. No. In fact, when you read the Old Testament back in Numbers, history tells us there that on the week before the Day of Atonement, the high priest would, in fact, go to the temple and continually practice in a separate place. He would practice what he was to do when he entered the most holy place. Why would he do that? For fear of the fact that if he got any aspect of it wrong, even in the minutest of details, God would take his life right there. Because God required exactness. God required worship exactly how God required it. And so he would go and he would practice. And to be in the Holy of Holies in some kind of way, unclean in any kind of sense, was instant death. And so he would, on that day of atonement, he would go and ceremonially bathe his entire body. And then instead of getting into his normal priestly garb that he would wear throughout the week in order to minister to the people, he would dress in all white. That, of course, was to symbolize his freedom from being defiled Once he was dressed, once he had cleansed his body, once he was dressed, he would enter into the holy place with a censer of burning coals with incense upon it, and the smoke and the incense would fill the room. And I'll bet you dollars to donuts, his heart was beating so fast you could hear it outside. He would exit and enter again with blood. And the blood of a bull was an offering for himself and his whole household he would have to offer the sacrifice for himself first. Being the high priest was a privilege, but all of that privilege didn't remove his sinfulness. He couldn't expunge anybody's sin. He had no capacity to expunge sin like the foolish things we hear today in the Roman Catholic Church. He could do none of that. There still needed to be a sacrifice for his own sin. He couldn't represent the people of God until his own sin was taken care of, so he would sprinkle the blood on and before the mercy seat. Leviticus 16 verse 14 tells us that he sprinkled it on the mercy seat and seven times before the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies 
where God was dwelling. After accomplishing those things, then he would enter as the representative for the people. And this time he brought the blood of the sacrifice for the people. And that too, he sprinkled on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat seven different times. At the conclusion of the priest's duties in that day, there would have been great relief among the people. So much so that they spent the night rejoicing. In fact, look at verses 6 and 7 in Hebrews chapter 9. This is how he describes it. Now, when these things have been thus prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. You see, here it is. Here's the people. Now they're thankful. Now they're glad. Now they can, the priest has accomplished the task. God has been satisfied with the sacrifice, and now they can rejoice. Everything's there. The old covenant has a sanctuary. The old covenant has God's presence. The Old Covenant shows the holiness of God. It shows the depth of man's sin, the need for a sacrifice. No one can enter the presence of God without shedding of blood. It's very solemn. It's very worshipful. It's very respectful, very honoring to God. And with all of that, it's still inadequate. It's still not enough. It's inadequate for two very big reasons. One, is it limited access to God? And two, it limited or it had a limited effect on covering sin and clearing the conscience. Verse 6 and 7 tells us that the priest even had limited access, right? Once a year, once a year. If you were fortunate enough to be a priest in Israel at the time, you got to serve. You got to serve maybe once in your lifetime in the outer room, in the holy of holy, or in the holy place, maybe once in your entire lifetime if you were a priest. It was a privilege to be a priest, but that, because of the way it was scheduled, maybe once in your entire life did you get to serve in the outer room, the holy place, and that was only for a week. That was your duty. One week. If you weren't a priest, you had no access at all. All you could do was get into the parking lot, if you will. And if you're a Gentile or a woman, forget about it. You couldn't even go there. You were outside that. And if you were fortunate enough to become the high priest, in fact, later in Israel's history, that had everything to do with politicking and who you knew and how you knew them. It didn't have to do with how God designed it. But if you had attained to that position, you even had limited access because it was only once a year that you had access, and that only for a few actual minutes at best. 
In fact, I always chuckle when I think about it being a political thing that people wanted to become high priest, especially when there was a temple around, because who in the world would want that if you could be killed in a nanosecond? Notice how verse 8 says, the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. You see, I don't think we need to be confused as to the point. Through the old covenant, through the old way, there was no direct access to God. Period. You couldn't go to God. But it also had limited effect. It not just limited access to God, it had limited effect on covering sin and clearing of the conscience. You notice in verse 7, it says, He offered Himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Committed in ignorance. Sins they didn't even know about. Well, that's what happens with us. We sin, and sometimes we don't even realize we're sinning because we're so accustomed to our humanity. Under the old system, there was no provision for forgiveness of willful sin. In fact, go back to Numbers chapter 15 for a moment. Numbers chapter 15. Verse 27 says, also if a person sins unintentionally, then he shall offer one-year-old female goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally, making atonement for him that he may be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is a native among the sons of Israel, and for the alien who sojourns among you. But the person who does anything defiantly, that means willfully, whether he's a native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord, has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall be on him. Did you find that interesting? There's the old covenant, God dealing with the people of Israel. It didn't matter if you're a part of Israel or a Jew or not, a Hebrew or not. Unintentional sins, go to the priest. He'll take care of the sacrifice. But a defiant sin, God saw it as just a violation of his command. There was no retribution or no uh, way to take care of that. The willful sinner had a huge problem. Huge problem before God. No sacrifice he could bring would satisfy God. No sacrifice satisfied God. In fact, remember what David said in Psalm 51? Psalm 51, I'll just remind us of this, just on my mind, as David was thinking about his own sin after he got confronted by Nathan. Here's what Davidson says in verse 16 and following. Well, I'll start in verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God. God of my salvation, 
My tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. Why? Because you you do not delight in sacrifice. Otherwise, I'd give it. In other words, if sacrifice was the thing that could appease the very fact that I willfully went against you, I'd bring sacrifice. I'd bring as much as I could. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are what? Are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You will not despise that. All of the outward things that you might want to do to try to appease God, to say, God, you're satisfied with me because I've done all these outward stuff is worthless. God wants us a broken and contrite heart. Sounds like Isaiah 66, doesn't it? God says, to this one I will look, to him who is humble, contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. Trembles at my word. The only thing that David could wish for, the only thing that any of us could wish for, the only thing that any Israelite could wish for was to just throw ourselves on the mercy of God and beg for mercy. So on the Day of Atonement, only the sins of ignorance were forgiven. And therefore, in light of that, nobody had a clear conscience. Nobody's conscience was clear. Their sins of ignorance were were gone, but their conscience was beating upon them over and over and over again because they knew they knew their heart was guilty. Right? Accordingly, verse 9, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. See verse 9 and 10 there? And the outward things don't do anything for long term. They're only short term coverings that might cover the things on the outside, but they don't do anything inside. External sacrifice only brings temporal and external cleansing. That's all it does. They never clear a guilty conscience before God. That's the old covenant. It's a reminder. It's a help. It shows you the seriousness of God. It shows you the sober-mindedness of what God requires in worship and the reality that He is to be worshipped above all things with exactness and with seriousness. But it doesn't do anything to cleanse you. Still have a guilty conscience because you have guilt before God. But then the writer of Hebrews comes to verse 11 through 14. And he starts with that contrasting word, that that deep, serious contrast. But, but when Christ appeared, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. You see, Jesus didn't come into the holy place under the cover of some smoke and incense like the high priest had to do. He didn't come into the holy place having to 
cleanse himself with the need of cleansing himself and 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 passing off the the reality of a animal sacrifice so that his his himself would be symbolically clean so that he could then represent the people no he came not carrying out some ritualistic duty until the next year, till it rolled around again, where he could once again do it once more. He didn't come carrying in that kind of blood, the blood of an animal, the blood of bulls, the blood of goats, as God had required. No. He came in through his own blood. Not through the blood of bulls and goats, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Notice verse 11 says, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come. He's the good thing to come. What was the good thing to come? was now the good thing that has come. Jesus Christ, He came. He has obtained eternal redemption through His own blood, it says. He entered the holy place once for all time. Don't confuse that in your mind, thinking that this sacrifice was a sacrifice for all people. That's not what he's saying. This is once for all time. In other words, he's, it's a contrast between the continual reality that the priest had to go over and over and over again, year after year after year after year, and yet here Jesus is once and for all time. So in and through Christ, this is the contrast, in and through Christ there is unlimited access to God. And in through Christ, there's even more than access. Those who come through Christ not simply gain access to God in a continual reality. You can go to God anytime you want. You can take your concerns to God. You can make your requests known to God as we are commanded. But when you come through Christ, you gain an unlimited effect of Christ's sacrifice on your behalf. You gain a clear conscience. Verse 13 and 14, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer and sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, the outside, and that for a time, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works? It's about the conscience. See, all the Old Covenant could do was symbolically clean the outside. That's all it could do. It was inadequate. It could only atone for the sins done in ignorance. But it could never clear the conscience. The writer of Hebrews says, In and through Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of God affects the soul. It affects the soul in the fact that in him every sin is forgiven. Not just the sins of ignorance, but the willful sins of the heart. Sins that we commit personally, knowingly against God. Christ accomplished the very thing the old covenant could not. He makes you and I 
who believe upon Him, the worshiper, that's us, we are the worshiper, as Romans 12 says, right? We are, this is our service of worship. He makes us the worshiper clear in conscience before God. Clear in conscience. Right? Verse 9, according to both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, but in Christ, this contrast, we are, as verse 14 says, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That sounds like Romans 12 to me. This is our reasonable service of worship. Because we have had our conscience cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, if we believe upon Him. And we know, and we know it's an inward and spiritual purification. It's not an outward uh, uh, sign on the outside like it used to be. It's an inward purification that's required if communion with God is to be enjoyed. That's the reality. If we're to enjoy communion, and if we are to have spiritual communion with God, and this moment that we're going to partake in here in just a few minutes is is a reality for us, then it has to come, and it can only come through a spiritual purification that is required. Communion is only for those whose guilt of sin has been removed in the conscience through faith in Jesus Christ. So that you who are now by faith in Christ, now being free from the guilt that you have before God, you are free to worship God in spirit and truth. And that's exactly the kind of worshipers that God is looking for, John says. Jesus said to the woman at the well, God is looking for worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. That's just another way of saying those who come through Christ. That's something the old system could never achieve. That's something works can never do. Can never achieve that. Can never accomplish what is needed, what God requires. Only Jesus Christ can do that. But Paul said it this way, in Christ we are new, what? Creatures. In Christ, we're new creatures. The old's passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's what we are in Christ. In Christ, anyone who will repent and trust in Him can have their guilty conscience, their seared conscience, their conscience that weighs down on them. They can have that cleared before God. In Christ, that we have unhindered access to God. Unhindered. Through Christ, our conscience is completely pure. That's not saying it doesn't weigh us down. It's not saying that our conscience screams at us. It's it's the light. It's the bell that rings at us when we know we're not doing the right thing because the truth of God lives in us because we have the mind of Christ if we believe Christ. We go to the Scriptures, we see what God requires, and when we don't do that, our conscience goes, ding, 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 you're not doing it. We need to go to God and we need to ask for forgiveness, but that doesn't mean our positions change before God in Christ. God still sees us 
as pure in Christ. We don't need anything else. That's why he uses that term and he says, how much more in verse 14? How much more? If the outside got you to a certain place, but it didn't go far enough, how much more do you think the blood of Christ does? Who through the Spirit, through the eternal Spirit, through God the Spirit offers Himself without blemish to God. He didn't deserve to die, but He offers Himself as a sacrifice, and through that, our conscience is clear. We realize that we don't have to do anything to earn God's favor. Christ already did it all. He paid the price. It's all accomplished. You see, beloved, that's what communion is about. That's what it's about. Worship of Christ. We come to the communion table, it's about the worship of Christ, because through his blood we can have a clear conscience. That's why Paul commands in 1 Corinthians 11 for believers to examine themselves why he says that. Examine yourself. See if you're in the faith. In fact, 2 Corinthians 13.5 says that. He's writing to believers. You go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he's writing to the saints, and in chapter 13, verse 5, he says, now examine yourself. See if you're in the faith. Look at your life. Worship is serious. It's not a game. It's not, hey, I'll worship today if I'm around, but if I don't feel like it, I won't worship. It's not like that. That's not a worshiper. Worship is serious. God requires more. And communion, worship in communion is only for those who are right with Christ internally, not externally, internally. Well, let's pray. Let's pray and we'll go to the Lord's table. Father, we thank you once again for our time this morning. Thank you for this brief look, really, this quick look at the comparison of worship in the old with worship today and new ever since Christ paid the price on the cross. Thank you that we, we've been given an example in the old. We know how Christ is superior we thank you that he came and died that sacrificial death that we might have life in his name. We thank you that through life in him, we could have a clear conscience before you that, that both our sins of commission and our sins of omission and our ignorant sins are all forgiven in Christ. So Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for the blessing of life in his name. Lord, surely there are those among us who wonder about these things. They don't know Christ. They're, they're not believers. Maybe they're believers intellectually. Maybe they believe that Jesus is real, but they, they have yet to turn from their sinfulness. They have yet to see their, themselves as an enemy of yours, and more importantly, you as an enemy of theirs. They have yet to embrace Christ as by faith in their life, that they would have true saving faith, that they would know Christ and desire to live for him in every way, no longer living for self, but living for Christ. Lord, we pray this morning that 
And these elements pass by them, they would not take them. For we know what your word tells us. We pray for all who know Christ, Lord, and if there's sin that they know of in their heart, sin against brother, sister, whatever, that they would make it right first. That they would go and seek forgiveness from those whom they've offended or those whom they have something against or sinned against. And be right before you before they ever would take these things to themselves. Lord, we thank you for worship. We thank you for the seriousness that you have given to worshiping you. Help us to take that to heart and always think seriously and mindfully and soberly about these things. That your name would be honored in us and through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.